91.3 KBCS Community Radio, Imaja Smith is a local advocate for Black families navigating the public school system. You'll hear about how she was inspired to do this work and what the experience of the public school system is like for many Black families. I spoke with her in February of this year. When I introduce myself in any space where it's about me, I describe myself as a community queen. And the community queen is someone who's the keeper of their community, right? You, you're making sure the, the children, the elders, our families are well. And that goes across the gamut of issues. But I do primarily focus in education advocacy, uh, justice reform advocacy, and issues that really hit the Black community and Black families, which is everything. <laughs> what is it that influenced your lifestyle now? You know, to be honest, um, what influenced me and my advocacy first and foremost was really watching as a young person. And when I say a young person, elementary school, really watching the community around me take care of me, thinking about the Black Panthers here in Seattle. My neighbor was really participated in making sure the kids were being fed. My family, being a larger family, my great-grandfather is Louis Jimerson, and my grandparents are Miller Jimerson Sr. and Florine Jimerson, and they definitely took care of the community. People came there to sleep, to eat. Uh, my ex- exposure and experience with uh, LGBTQ, trans community all came from being at my grandmother's house, which I was at my grandmother's almost every day, grew up around the corner. Once we moved further out, still there every single day, having a tight-knit family. So having an opportunity to understand at a, at a really young age the intersections of oppressions and the needs in the community, you know, experience in the 80s, a lot of the layoffs that were happening in my own family and how we really needed to pull together um, and get through that understanding. Just, just life experience, but experiencing them when there was I-200, those things. But the biggest one I would say that really impacted my firm, fierce warrior spirit advocacy was the war in my community in terms of uh, criminalizing people being victims of addiction, the, the fact that crack was brought into my community, the over-policing in those crime bills to really see in real time in my life the trauma it caused, not only my community at that time, the trauma it caused my family. I mean, I seen it in real life. The trauma has caused the Black community for generations later, and seeing how that was part of the onset of gentrification that has attacked the Black community. So to see that in high school as a teenager, to know families personally affected by three strikes laws, to know families personally in high school, 14 and 15, having to take care of their siblings. I mean, multiple young people taking care of their parents because of the criminalization and just the the addiction issue. And to this day, you could still see it in policy where they don't want to accept that crack caused a lot of mental health issues and all the institutions around that, instead of trying to come and give a resource and be a support to help this community move through it, no, we're going to enforce laws that are going to take your children away and the criminalize you, the um, women, talking about sterilizing women and utilizing just every policy, every institution you can think of, understanding, living, growing up in the central area when it was really all Black. That was a privilege for me. I'm happy that I had that opportunity but understanding the redlining around it, understanding what 
what it felt like to cross the Montlake Bridge from the central area going to North Seattle. Like there was a sense of like, you, you don't belong here. This is my life. That was me in middle school feeling that way, needing to get back home by a certain time of, of, of night. You know, if we were going to a field trip or an event at my middle school, that was in uh, the Wedgwood neighborhood. That's my reality. And so having survived that myself and, and graduating high school, I made it my journey at that point. At 17, I said, I'm going to go to college, get my degree, and I want to work in whatever area that I can do to rectify these harms that I'm seeing in my community right now. And I did believe that education at that time uh, was a path out, was a path forward, was a path for change. So I really want to shore up quality education. Also, I was constantly hearing how these this gap, this gap in education, but I I'm an intelligent person and my friends around me were intelligent. So I didn't quite understand this stereotype that get, kept getting placed on us. And also saying, I need to make right the wrongs that are happening because you're, you're taking away our valuable resource, which is our people and incarcerating them. I want to give a, a sense of what the community looked like for me across the street from my grandparents' house was a corner store, the Wilson family, a large family as well own a lot of property, I believe still does in the central area. We took care of each other. So if I went across that street and first of all, my grandparents, we always had a barter system. Like, you know, you can get some things and my grandparents would make sure it was paid for. So that's a sense of feeling cared for. There's not a store right now for my children that they could go into. Like we're, I'm making sure you make sure you get your receipts, make sure your stuff is seen. So on the camera, there's not a store I can think of that you can go inside of and you are welcomed and you are seen and the people know your family. And I also know that I'm going to be accountable for how I show up in this space. So I felt that way at, at that store from that family. Then there was a grocery store not too far away where we walked to the grocery store. There was really not a need to drive unless you were coming back from a different place where the food was catered to the community. You know, you're, you're gonna have the, your red beans, your greens, your certain seasoning and spices that I don't see in the stores anymore, but there's still a sense of somebody works there that knows you. I walked four blocks to the Odessa Brown Children's Clinic. So I remember Odessa Brown before was what it is now and the, the satellite connection to Children's Hospital and to go in there and people ask you how you're doing. That environment is still there in many, many respects. And I take my children there because you are seen. To me, that is being taken care of. And if you are doing something, you don't have to be chastised by community members. When I grew up, it was a look. <laughs> uh, also having a larger family at the time, they also offered me protection and safety because people knew the family. So there are spaces, some people didn't walk down certain streets in the 80s and the 90s, I got to go in those places. I was told certain streets were dangerous. I was told don't go to these places at certain times of nights. But when you're a teenager and it gets dark in Seattle and you're coming from an after-school event, you kind of can't miss those spaces. But my family being large and being around enough that someone could say, oh, that's so-and-so's child. So I was able to get some access and some passes that way. What I'm trying to center around this is that we need our communities and having a hub of a community 
where you are truly welcomed and seen in your humanity is, is essential to our survival. You know, I want to just honor my grandmother and I want to honor her grandparents who raised her. I want to honor my grandfather and honor my mother um, because they modeled for me what, what this looks like. They modeled for me, which is when I say I'm a community queen and what, what, those values that I hold around that were modeled for me for generations of past. KBCS Community Powered Radio. You're listening to a conversation with Imaja Smith, an advocate for Black families navigating the public school system. Talk about how you started getting involved in an advocacy um, and where do you center your work? Informally, my advocacy and education began in my early 20s. I grew up in a close-knit family, so I have first cousins that I consider like sister and brothers. And I needed to start advocating for one cousin in middle school at Washington Middle School. We later learned that it has dyslexia, but was having some issues with the reading. But my aunt was a victim of addiction, was not as involved. So me as a big sister literally went to the school to meet and have meetings with teachers. So I was advocating with my cousin, I think before I had children myself, and I advocated with my cousin throughout high school. They eventually graduated from the University of Washington once we understood the the learning disability and got the necessary resources, but it took some years to do that because I wasn't, quote unquote, their legal guardian in the school. I seen firsthand how the educators didn't care. You know, we were trying to like, help me help my cousin. And when I watched that they didn't really care, and also I'm dealing with a teen, right? Who, I mean, is a boss. My cousin, she's a boss. She's beautiful and she's she's great. And at that time she was learning who she was, you know, middle school, high school, you're developing your identity. Then my own educational experience where I was in a highly capable program, I didn't really have issues around the learning. It was just issues around the access to opportunity that really wasn't afforded to me. Learning from the values of my family, we didn't really like to rely on government assistance, even though we utilized government assistance. It was something that you looked at as a temporary, you step out of that because of what it does sometimes to, you can get stuck, right? So just navigating those systems around education, I didn't really utilize them. I just paid for it. I figured it out. I worked two jobs. I did whatever I needed to do. I was a single mother, but I'm going to make this happen because I knew, I believe that education was going to be the transformational spot. But once my child, my first child entered Seattle public schools, a public institution, I learned, and my child was a, a a female. So even that experience was a little different. It was really soft on me. You know, my experience was really, they were trying to say she was reading below grade level when my daughter always, she taught herself how to read. She always read above grade level. She's always been great. And I mean, throughout her, her whole education, AP language arts and always touted around her writing, but I was told in first grade, her first environment into a North and Northeast Seattle public school that she was reading below grade level. So I had to advocate. And I found that in that advocacy, me needing to understand policy. I needed to understand the, the school budget, 
the state's education budget so that when I stepped into that meeting, I was able to say, you know, I might be a UW student here, but I understand how the free and reduced lunch meal plan works. I understand how the money follows a child. You guys have a reading program here that is being funded through free and reduced lunch uh, Title I funding. I mean, I had to break it all down. They probably were like, what? How is this, this Black woman coming at me like this? And I said, if my if it's on the backs of my child that this program is being funded, then she needs to be in there. If you're saying she's reading below her grade level. Well, they had her evaluated by the reading specialist and come to find out she's above still, like well, that I always knew. But if I did not advocate, that teacher would have continued to keep grading her down. That could have become a problem later in her educational career. But it took me advocating and having that background, I was like, wow, I really need to understand this policy. I didn't realize understanding that information was going to even affect my advocacy. I just wanted to understand the information because I was looking at it like, I want to understand how Seattle's public schools works. And I took a class on budget. And another great piece around that is connecting with a base of organizers in the community who helped me once I went to the University of Washington, take my first undoing institutionalized racism training which really gives you great language around the structures and systemic racism and how that plays out in our institutions. And, you know, we are all kind of normalizing this culture of how to be. The most well-meaning folks, including the Black folks in our community, we're just trying to live and survive. And so you, you come across these obstacles and you think it's you, but it's not you. It's like the policy that's in place that makes things inaccessible or they're not equitable. And it was once I went to graduate school, uh, receiving um, my master's in public administration, wanting to learn how to change policy, still seeing that that as an education institution that still needed a lot of work and was miseducating me, but helped me better understand what the infrastructure and systems of policy and policy analysis works. So I use that to my advantage to do uh, my community advocacy and to sit at policy tables and really come with solutions rather than just complaints. You know, you gotta come with a language and a strategy that we all can understand because most of us are just going by what we know and the norms of everyday life and how all these institutions have been working. But when you understand that they are embedded in racism and anti-blackness, you gotta come with a anti-racism and a pro-black agenda. And you need to make it work in a way that benefits the full community and, the, and our full humanity. I had two black male children, wonderful, beautiful, brilliant. And so back in 2012, my older son went into kindergarten in Seattle public schools. Totally different experience. I mean, it, it was like the attack was just coming. I, I heard about it. I seen some issues other parents were having, but I didn't have a black boy. When I started to see it starts so early to start to kill the spirit of our children, all my advocacy was even more on because now I got more experience, right? From advocating with my daughter than advocating in the community. And I actually engaged myself in more policy tables, the PTA, the PTSAs, anything I could join parent support, peer support teams at the school, anything that I thought could make change. And I thought that they would be simple. We'll just give a great solution here. It's not a hard change. And 
we could see the the benefits, the fruits of that labor. And what I've quickly came to learn is that, wow, these institutions will fight you. They will fight you. They will fight you to the point where they will push you out. And I had another son come in with learning disabilities and had to advocate that way too. And they just fight you. They just fight you tooth and nail. And I don't know why. I don't know why our education system does that, but I do see how early on it perpetuates the school to prison pipeline. And I'm like, everything in my power, I'm not trying to have my children die an early death in here in these streets. Everything in my power, I'm trying to ensure they're not going into the carceral system. And it's not just my children, it's their cousins, it's my niece and nephews, it's my neighbor's children. It's the community that I live in. I focus on my children, of course, every parent should. But I got to understand that my children and myself will be living in the community of the other kids that are hanging out on the corner. So I need to also advocate for policy change that will benefit our full community so we can all have vibrancy. So what I just learned in my education advocacy is that institutions really fight hard to maintain itself. I don't like to go after individuals per se, but we are impacted as individuals. But there are also there are individuals who hold the power to make the decisions in these in these institutions that maintain this setup. It's a lot of education and awareness, and it's a lot of making sure you bring your community together in your organizing and your base building and having authentic relationships. Like get to know your neighbor for your neighbor. Don't get caught up on on sometimes mistakes. Let's not get caught up in mistakes. Let's try to find that common ground in our humanity, understanding that we have different lived experiences. Because we get caught up in the rainbow coalition and I don't see no color that that is, I don't believe in that. I believe in solidarity work. I believe that we it's gonna take us to support each other moving forward. But if you say you're supporting the black community and you understand what's happened in the black community, then you know it's gonna take some more resources to make it equitable. If you're saying that we are supporting the indigenous and our native community, the land that we rest on every day, then it's gonna take more than just talking about, can we all just get along? No, it's gonna take resources that have to be poured in that way. And just understanding like where we stand in that. And we have to address racism and anti-blackness to get there. We can't run from that conversation. And Seattle and the, the state of Washington, the Pacific Northwest, likes to just smile and sometimes don't want to get have those really hard conversations that we really need to have and heal and, and work together through it and stop being afraid to say i want to support a black agenda a pro-black agenda that's that's a beautiful thing thank you wow thank you you did mention about how the current situation in the education system the current culture is this pipeline to prison. And maybe if you could talk a little bit about the, the specifics, like some specific examples of, of how that's playing in. Um, you've already spoken to how um, black children are treated, you know, be, because of these microaggressions that launches that, but are there other things that you might wanna speak about in regards to that? Well, I want to speak about how our current education system miseducates really all of us, how it doesn't take into account the varying learning styles of different folks. So our education system is just, it's lacking. 
And I don't think it's prepared to or interested in really teaching the majority of our students. Because even our new, our, the newer age of, or era of our youth, are, they're just eclectic people and we just learn differently. So it doesn't infuse that. So it opens it up to setting Black and Indigenous folks and other people of color back. And I would say even white students too, this sets them back if you're not willing to be to flex your style of teaching, which should be taught in our higher education institutions where you're getting certified to be teachers. So to not infuse music and those different things. So it, it just sets them backwards to get the education that they need to move along each grade. And so elementary school is where you're learning the basics, but by the time you hit middle school, you're learning. You're learning to read in elementary. You're learning to add. That's the example. But you're applying what you've learned in elementary once you hit middle school. You're applying that learning. You're applying your reading and writing to write your essays. If you don't have that by middle school, wow, how do you keep up? So what happens is our students drop out. But also what I've watched as I keep pushing my own children forward in the learning is how they're treated my son has been accosted, grabbed on by the adults in the school just for walking to the bathroom because they perceive that he's doing something that he's not supposed to. But he has to go through that experience of somebody putting their hands on him, tell me about it, and I got to go up there, talk to them about it. Oh, you're not that person. It was just this area we had been watching, but that still has an impact on his spirit of, of welcoming and how safe he feels in his place of learning. Then you think about the education system not catering to the varying learning styles of our students and our needs. So now we're going to put you in special education, right? Oh, you didn't meet the third grade math testing requirements. So we're going to put you in special education. It's not that you can't learn it and something's wrong with you. It's because you never were teaching a child to the way that they learn. You were just telling them from kindergarten because you move around too much that they're a problem. Got this mom all stressed out rather than giving that child something that they can do and learn together. That child likes to move, give them a, a ball to dribble while you're teaching them. Maybe they'll hold it. Are they visual? Give them some visuals instead of talking to them behind them, walking around the classroom, they can't see you. And I know this because I'm the type of person that when I talk to people, I, they think I'm just staring at them, but I'm really watching their mouth for some reason. I, I get the information that way. And I have to tell people that so they don't, they're not offended by me in, in my stare or my look, right? But those are the things that set us up because once kids start moving out or the, the parents are stressed out and they're not as sticking into that fight of getting through that system, you know, things happen now they're skipping school, there's juvenile because you, you're doing something you probably shouldn't have been doing um, or you're just hanging out. As So these 80s, 90s years, I'm just at the bus stop trying to get to night school and the police is pulling over asking me, why am I there? And when I say I'm waiting for the bus to go to my night school class, they're writing everything down about me and treating me as though I'm lying and putting me in their system. Maybe it's a so-called not the best neighborhood, but I live in this neighborhood. You guys deem my neighborhood to be bad. I didn't deem it to be bad. It's, It's actually supportive of me. So that's what happens. And then once you enter into that system, as an adult in particular, first of all, they're, they're auto-declining and charging more Black youth than any other group as adults. So then they're getting into that system. It's kind of just like 
quicksand. It's hard to get out of that. And so that's the school to prison pipeline because it's a whole nother ball game once you get over into that system, even as a, a person under 25, how are you being educated? What educational opportunities are offered to you? Are those educational opportunities even going to be centered around your lived experience and how you learn and who's going to get paid off of that? Another university that doesn't have anybody that looks like you even teaching you? So similar to our, our K through 12 system and even our pre-K systems now, like they're pouring out teachers that don't relate to the community that they're serving, can't teach to the varying teaching styles or learning styles. And the information is out there. The, the consultants, the PhDs, they're out there. That could be infused in our education. And I will give Seattle Public Schools, I'm sure there's others, some credit that they're trying to find other access avenues to recruit teachers of color who can connect better with our communities. Um, we just need more of that. It needs to be more robust. We need our education uh, budget to really support that so that our that all our children are getting a quality education and they're getting it in a way that's needed for them to get it. You can't expect people to show up to the party. You told them what the party was about, but maybe you didn't tell them what it was going to cost them or what the directions to get even get there. It's like, it's just a setup for failure. And then the other place that's waiting for you when you need jobs and economic opportunities is just a prison. It's a reality. You could theorize it and make it an academic, but it's real. And I've seen it from, from the young people in the community that I've watched in my neighborhood and I'm watching it and I'm trying to be really guarded with my own children to prevent it. You were also talking about how with the boys and how the attacks just start coming. Could you give some examples of what that looks like? I would say for my older son, who is, I call him a intellectual athlete. I mean, really brilliant, very brilliant with his mind as well as his body. So this is a child who is a experiential learner and a kinesthetic learner and a verbal learner. This does not match up well with how most education institutions like to teach. So this is a child who, who likes to do cartwheels. He used to do cartwheels. You're supposed to walk down the line, go to the bathroom, go to lunch. No, he likes to do flips. Luckily, the school had an acrobatic program called SCATS that he was able to participate in that allowed him that space and to love his education and learning because of it. But during the school day, that wasn't um, supported. Now, his kindergarten teacher, lovely Black woman, Miss King, understood this about his learning style. So she didn't talk to him in a negative fashion or former fashion around that. We found ways to support him. Maybe he needs a break and he could just go do some jumping jacks because next because he's going to be on the floor <laughs> crawling up under the desk or doing something. But he came in to a kindergarten knowing all of his ABCs, writing his name, uh, he came from an immersion Spanish program and he came in already set up and ready to go. Um, I don't think he, he never quite after kindergarten was highlighted for his level of intelligence, his academics or whatever. So I don't, I think it kind of diminished a little bit of his spirit around how great he is. 
but he was always adorned because he could do flips in the gym and play basketball. Everyone said adorn that physical, his physical and athletic ability, but uh, not his leadership ability. But, and I would say every black boy in his class who are natural leaders, they all had the physical and athletic ability, but they were always the ones getting in trouble. You're talking too much or they're saying there's a discipline issue. And my son was included in that and I didn't quite understand, but I did start to watch how all the children lean and look to these children as leaders, natural leaders throughout their whole uh, elementary career. They all stood together through fifth grade, um, but none of them were highlighted for their intelligence. So when I say things because they were getting in trouble or always being told they were in trouble, if my son wasn't there, he was being accused of doing things wrong. But one example I would love to share with you is that I came to class, he was a second grader, to meet up with my son, pick him up from school, because I would drop my children off to school and pick them up every day. And he seen me and he was excited and he ran over to me and gave me a hug, because that's his, he has a, he's a social butterfly, he's, he loves people and, I, and I'm great, I'm happy. And the teacher tried to discipline him right there in front of me and tell me that he's being disrespectful because he ran over to me because he should have walked. See, the school was more concerned about walking straight, sitting still, being quiet. That doesn't cater to their learning style. So that kills the spirit of a person who's naturally being themselves and growing into their adulthood. Even if the environment later of the education is that you should sit still, you're in college, you're taking your class, whatever, you're listening to the lecture, but the vibrancy there didn't match these key leaders of young children who I would say, they were all um, black boys, making them feel like something's wrong with them all the time. So I had to explain to the teacher, he's not in any way being disrespectful. I, I love that he came and said hi to me. And I said, and actually in my community, that respect and disrespect, we must see it differently because you have to do something quite quite drastic for me to feel disrespected. And once I feel disrespected or in my community, we kind of cut you off. So there's nothing that my son has done at all to even use that term for that action right there um, is harmful. Because in our community, if you hear disrespect, you think you really violated someone and you want to either atone for that or, you, or you're not gonna deal with the person anymore. They're just cut off until there's a lot of healing and community gotta come in a circle to help you with that healing. So this is what the teacher thinks about him in front of me. What is she saying to him and thinking about him when I'm not around? For my younger son, he first entered kindergarten. This was even before the first day of school started. They have like a two week program to get you acquainted to enter kindergarten. And he's just walking. He says he's just walking to go to the line to the restroom with all the kids. And the teacher started saying, I'm disappointed in you. And so he came back to me and said, the teacher said they're disappointed in me. And I don't know why because they had great experiences in their pre preschool before this kindergarten. So I talked to the teacher and the teacher said, I don't know why I said that he actually wasn't doing anything. And that's what I mean by killing the spirit because it's the words or you're presumed guilty before you even get the information. Uh, you get in trouble first and then we have the conversation and find out what really happened. And then they're like, oh, I didn't know that. These are adults with, with education, but they're primarily not all, because some are black too, but primarily they're not, they're non-black people. So it's the anti-blackness that is normalized 
Uh, it's okay to discipline this child so many times, but you keep making the mistake. And adults actually bully children too, because a, a lot of parents aren't present. So they get away with a lot at the school. And when you call that adult out, because a school has a resource to keep the structure, they don't want to totally fire or they're with the union, you can't fire the, the educator. So they're still there in their unhealthy state. They need therapy, they need healing for their, probably their childhood traumas and they're causing trauma on children. And what people don't understand is when you keep telling somebody something negative or saying something negative about them and they don't even know why, they can't change who they are, you're actually attacking their spirit and eventually they'll start saying, well, something is wrong with me. And so my third grade, my younger child by third grade, not only would cry before going to school, but was really in a depressive state. And it took me two years because of the neighborhood school, because it made the best sense for our family. I kept him there, but I was intentional that I'm going to make sure I heal, help heal him. Um, got him to love school by the fifth grade, but there was a new principal that came in, some staff were left, and I made sure, they were so tired of me advocating in there. They were like, just go, give this lady what she needs because we don't need these problems. I would do anything. You're not gonna keep harming my children. And I've decided that everything you say you're gonna take from me, well, they can't come to this program or that program. I, I don't care. Cause we're gonna be stronger together as a family first and we're going to come here and get this math and reading curriculum, but I supplement education outside of here. So we're not dependent on this school for a full education. So that's probably how I survived it. Also, I, again, a new principal came in and we had support and they were partnering me with, with that to the best of their ability, firing people or, or getting certain staff out had to happen in a, in a different way, which I would say through prayer um, and allowing that higher spirit, which I believe in God, uh, remove people and got them out of our way to make sure that my children could be as whole as possible in this, in that setup, because, which taught me as a mother that, of course, these are, in my belief, these are God's children, it's my job to shore them up and give them what they need, but there's something greater for them. So these people have to get out the way because their purpose in life has to come, will come through regardless of what human control they think they may have on them. Thanks for listening to that. As I'm listening, I was, I kept thinking, but would they have done that if, if the kid that was running to their parent, which just is a sign of attachment, which is a good, beautiful thing, you know, would they have said that to a, a white child just saying, you know, I'm disappointed in you without reason, would they have done that to a white child? I would say they would not have. We went through a lot. And so in their elementary years, a lot. And um, I will say that the more you even advocate sometimes as a parent, the, the bigger the fight will come. There's so much control and power over your child in such a disregard for black family because of the, the, the deep embeddedness of anti-blackness that when you do show up, to me, it just felt like a fight. Luckily, I was engaging and networking with other parents in the community, bu building a black community in this education field, building a black community in the school. I know that it wasn't, I'm not the only one. 
And then as I network more around education advocacy, I'm talking to my Latino, Latina mothers, uh, non-English speaking or English as a second language learner community. I'm like, I'm not the only one going through this. So we were kind of like building our collective power together, which gave me more went behind my back to say what I needed to say. And it actually gave others the courage to speak up as well. But that was happening. That was being normalized because a lot of parents, we just believe what the teacher says. And there's a lot of great teachers out there. Don't get me wrong. But those setups at the local level and the school level really hold the power and want to maintain that power. They have a lot of control of your kids most of the school day. So trying to come in and, and help people celebrate and understand Black families and Black culture, other than the month of February, can sometimes get on people's nerves. And I don't mind getting on your nerves. I'm good trouble. Good trouble's coming along your way. (laughs) Is there an organized group of parents of color who, a solidarity that's organizational for families of color to be able to tap into? There's a group called Agape in Federal Way that I've connected with. Myself through um, colorful communities where a lot of people see me as a go-to around education advocacy. There's King County Equity Now is a Black-led organization that really connects with a large base of other Black-led organizations that are really centered in the Black community. There's the Africatown Center of Education and Innovation. I would highlight Christina Families of Color, Seattle, Lord, for anybody who's hearing this and I've not mentioned your organization, I apologize because that's off the top. I want to shout out the Tubman Center for Health and Freedom because, you know, even though we're talking about education right now, all of it is attached, right, to housing, to health, to food. You know, you can't really think of one without the other. And as And as Black mothers out here, and mothers in general, when we take care of our community and our families, we're talking about, are they warm? Are they fed? You know, are they educated? Um, are we sheltered? So there are a lot of other organizations and I'm happy to try to be a resource and make more connections that are doing a great work out here. There's some powerhouses out there. There's principals, there's teachers. There's just everyday mothers, you know, who work at grocery stores and we network and we make it happen. And I all I call them community queens, whether they call them themselves community queens or not. I see what they do. What I want to share is that life is full of joy. Through all this, life is full of joy. And I would love to share that we focus on our joy, whatever we find that to be. The little bit of laughter, the goofiness, whatever you can do, find your loved ones, build your community. Be intentional about building authentic relationships and seeing the humanity in each other. And even if it feels hard, walk alongside each other and speak up, show up and show out for each other. No more excuses. There's understanding, but there's no more excuses for those who hold the privilege. It's time to share. Sharing is a beautiful thing. Share your power and understand that even if you let go of some of your privilege, Having the relationships and these authentic relationships are way more valuable 
than the, than the objects of whatever it is you think you're holding. For those of us who are going through it every day, just whatever it is that makes you smile, hold it, hold it, feel it in your body, embrace it and keep pushing forward. And that I feel you and I understand, particularly to our black mothers out there, I understand, hold your head, straighten your crown and, and walk in your dignity and you make everybody else respect it. And I got your back. I don't even know all y'all out there, but I make it clear that we respect our black women and we respect our black mothers. To the rest of y'all and solidarity work, I'm here to work in solidarity with anyone who wants to work in solidarity. And we are up against a huge beast of these institutions around racism. And it is not an easy walk, but I'm here to walk alongside you if you're really here to walk alongside me. That was Imaja Smith, advocate for Black families in our region who are navigating the school system. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.